Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Wednesday the 11th of October. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up. It just floored me really that we're, making, we're being made to wait again for another year for something that we've been crying out for for so long. I would describe a friendship as something that's voluntary, so a voluntary relationship. A relationship that's reciprocal, so both people need to feel they're in the friendship. It's also associated with positive affect or mood, so you like the person, most of the time at least. But back then we were like, oh, what are we doing? And then Kevin was like, let's do a podcast. And I was like, what's a podcast? And he had to explain it to me like... Uh, you're, uh, you can't be serious. No, this is, 20, no this is 2019. Plenty of budget talk on the radio today and on Morning Ireland, Colette Bennett, who's the economic and social analyst with Social Justice Ireland, gave her reaction to budget 2024. Now, unfortunately, it didn't deliver, no. Um, What we've seen once again is that government is relying on temporary measures for those who need, I suppose, additional support the most. So, yes, we have seen an additional payment for the cost of living this year. Um, People who are on certain disability type payments will see an additional €400. See the Christmas bonus being paid and then we're going to see some energy credits. But very similar to what we saw last year, Once they're gone, they are gone. And it is a completely and wholly inadequate response to an ongoing cost of living crisis. And I believe this comes from either a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation by the minister yesterday of what inflation is doing. Inflation, by its very nature, is not going down. We're not seeing a decrease. We're seeing that would be deflation. What we're seeing is the rate of increase of prices actually just slowing down. But if you look at, say, an average inflation of 8% last year, Mm -hmm. about 5% this year, maybe 2.5% next year. Those prices are going up and we're seeing an entirely inadequate response for those who are on the lowest incomes to actually meet those prices. Social Justice Ireland called for an increase in core social welfare rates of at least €25 a week. What we saw was 12. Um, This is not sufficient for people to actually afford the basics. Uh, We're not talking about luxuries here. We're talking about a benchmark which has been supported by both the Commission on Taxation and Welfare and the Budgetary Oversight Committee um, so that people have a a decent standard of living Mm -hmm. rather than having to to go without or to borrow just to pay for their living expenses. Now, the Taoiseach said a year ago when he was launching the Child Poverty Unit uh, that it sets out a vision to make Ireland the best country in Europe to be a child, creating conditions for all children to be well and happy. How are we getting on with that vision? Not great. Um, and it's it's very unfortunate. I mean, we wholeheartedly welcomed the, the establishment of the child poverty unit within the Taoiseach's office. Um, and we really, you know, anticipated good things from that. But unfortunately, Budget 24 just hasn't delivered on that either. Uh, so again, we've seen inadequate income supports, as I said, for those on core social welfare. We saw €12 Euro instead of 25 We've seen an increase of just €4 Euro in the qualified child payment, uh, which is tied into the the welfare payments of the household rather than a 50 euro increase to child benefit which would reach much many more children but, but, but let me ask you this on, yeah. let me ask you this because uh, there was a lot of money available in budget 2024 you're arguing they didn't do enough for the sector that you advocate for what are you suggesting they should not have done yesterday What we're suggesting is that they actually should have targeted their measures much better than that. So, you know, a very welcome increase in the in the rate of the minimum wage. Absolutely. But it's still two euro ten 
below the living wage, the actual living wage of what it costs to live. Uh, we're see, we saw uh, an increase of 25% in relation to the, the childcare subsidies. Mm. But again, we didn't see the necessary investment in the sector um, because you know we're lagging very far behind. But, but who should have lost out regard. here? Who should have lost out in, in, in well, the spread that came in the budget yesterday? Well, I wouldn't necessarily frame it as lost out, but certainly we've seen measures that will benefit those on higher incomes and those who just don't need it. And a prime example of that is the mortgage interest relief. Uh, so that's available to 165,000 households if you have a mortgage between 80 um, and 500,000 uh, as at the end of last year. And you've seen any increase in your um, interest payments yeah. this year up to a value of 1,250. Rather than targeting the people that we know are in mortgage distress. There's 17,000 of them um, and they are in mortgage arrears. So, you know, if we had looked at a, a subsidy for, for those people, that would have been a much more targeted and much more beneficial measure. Colette Bennett from Social Justice Ireland speaking to Mary Wilson on Morning Ireland. Later callers to today with Claire Byrne got the chance to ask Ministers Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue questions in the wake of the budget and as you can imagine there were plenty but here's just one caller, Maura. Well, my, I, we, my husband and I care for our adult daughter who's 29 with uh, severe physical and intellectual disabilities. Um, I'm in receipt of carers allowance. My, uh, my question really is this budget... Where is the plan in the budget for adults with intellectual disabilities who are going to require residential services? And why is the government consistently ignoring the needs of these vulnerable adults? Currently, the HSE won't waitlist adults with intellectual disability for residential placement except where the families are in crisis. And currently, on that crisis waiting list, of which we're not one of them, uh, there are 350 people. And funding yesterday in the, yesterday's budget was provided for 90 of those. Now, that leaves obviously 260 people in crisis, apart from the likes of our family. We're, like, we're, all, we're pensioners, and with these numbers are increasing every year with ageing carers. We all have our own health issues. And this is coming down the tracks and there's absolutely no planning set aside for the children. Can, can, I, can I just ask you a little bit more about that, just for people who are yeah. not familiar with the situation? Are you talking about respite care or are you talking no. about residential care down the line in the future? I'm residential care now. I need it now. As a, as a pensioner, I need it now. But we are not currently, or any of families in my situation, currently waitlisted for residential placement. But there's no funding set aside for planning for the future of these adults mm. And tell me a little bit about Kira and what you need to do for Kira on a daily basis. Well, Kira has mental capacity of a baby, so she's about 18 months old uh, mentally, even though she's 29 year old adult. She's a wheelchair user, non verbal. She has intractable epilepsy, pegs fed. She has kidney issues, so she's a permanent catheter. She has seizures every day um, and she's non verbal. So, I mean, literally, she has to be washed dressed, nappies changed, everything, hoisted, everything. So as we get older, my worry is what will happen to her when we're gone? And I don't want to wait till we're dead before HSE will step in and house her. Mm-hmm. Um, Minister Donoghue. So uh, good morning, Maura. And, uh, good morning. Thank you very much for calling in and uh, describing the the great care and love that I know you show to Kira, but also making clear to me uh, how much more you need uh, yes. to give Kira the future and the care that you want to give her 
and of course we do, and also to give you and your family the support that you clearly deserve. And I know as I explain to you what we are doing and what we want to do, um, it will always appear somewhat hollow in comparison to the challenges you have in your life at the moment and how you want the best for Kira. But please just do allow me just to describe what we are trying to do to give you the support and the certainty that you need in the future. So what we are doing at the moment is, um, at the moment there are currently 8,200 uh, citizens and families within our country who are in receipt of the residential services that you need and that you want your family and you want Kira to be able to access. And in the budget, uh, we announced 15.5 million euro to increase that. Now, I know you're going to make the does point... Does that increase that or is that a standstill figure? No, it does increase it. So the 15.5 million euro is extra. And just to put that in context, and I'm, I'm always so aware, talking about millions or hundreds of millions or billions sometimes seems really abstract when you compare that to the reality of what Moira is living in her life. So I, I would, but just to answer that question, around 60% of all of the money that we spend at the moment through our uh, budget for those who have uh, disabilities focuses on providing residential services. And those services are provided now for over 8,000 uh, families and those that they love. Uh, we need to do more. Uh, that's why we have provided extra money that will increase the number of spaces and places that are available. And what we've also done, though, I know uh, Moira has, this is not the issue that Moira is referring to, that the services that we provide for respite to help and support those who need us, that's increased from around 3,650 places there in 2020 to now stands at 5,800. So we're trying to increase that too. We do have a plan. There's a clear plan in place to increase the number of supports and places and we're trying to do it as quickly as we can while managing many of the other needs you and see, demands I, I, that we have. I suppose for, for Moira and people who are in Moira's situation or similar to it, they're hearing about the squeeze on the health budget and they're very worried about how this is going to affect them when their situation is already as desperate. You can hear that Moira is, is exhausted. I can and that's why I'm at pains to acknowledge the great challenge that there is to support, you know, the, the daily challenge you face in, care, in caring and loving for those who really need such a high level of additional support in relation to the health budget. And again, these figures sound nearly abstract when we reconcile this with the experience that we're hearing about today. Our health budget is over 22 billion euro. Uh, we will continue to provide additional funding and support for us. We now have 22,000 more people working in our health services than we did three years ago. And what Michael and I are doing, every budget we do, every day we work together, is try to provide the additional funding and support within an economy to help with the reality of what Moira is referring to for her daughter, Kira. Right. Moira, that doesn't change anything for you, does it? Not at all, not at all. In fact, we um, applied for additional uh, home care package, home care hours, should I say, and were refused. We also applied for residential placement and got a letter from the HSE in July to say that we were not in a position uh, to offer us residential placement at this time and therefore we're closing our case. So it, it offers us no hope. What do you think you'd need to do in order to get help? 
I want the HSE to start listening to families, to coming and meeting us and, and coming to to listen to us. And we, we have no names of anybody in the HSE. We get these letters and they're not signed. And they're just telling us, I'm sorry, your, your case is closed. We're not considering you. And they don't, they're not even listening to families. Mm-hmm. So I and, and more is just to say in, in my work within my own constituency and the work that we do, I do across the country. I, I experience this regularly. I get this very direct feedback from from you, from families like you across the country. But it is the reason why we are putting the kind of funding in place at the moment to support families such as your own. It is in place, as I said, for over 8000 families and people. But we know we need to do more. And I really hope in the changes that we announced in the budget, it can make a difference to you uh, in, in the coming months. Okay. Minister Pascal Donoghue on Today with Claire Byrne. Sticking with the budget and callers to Liveline with Katie Hannan expressed their disappointment with the foster carers allowance. Here's Maria. You're a foster carer, Maria, just to explain to people. I am. And uh, there was big anticipation that you would finally get an increase in your allowance because it's been a long time yes. coming, hasn't it? A long, long time coming, yeah. Since 2009, we got a small increase, yeah. So uh, there was a lot of expectation that hopefully we get recognised this time. And explain to people what happened. Well, they brought it up and they said we would get an extra €75 Euros a week, which is a long time coming. Um, but it's not coming until the end of 2024. And it just floored me, really, that we're, making, we're being made to wait again for another year for something that we've been crying out for for so long. And just to explain to people, Maria, to be absolutely 100% accurate, uh, what they announced was that €25 of that would be paid in January, but that the bulk of it, the final €50, would not be paid until next uh, November of 2024. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I heard that afterwards, actually. My first, the first time I heard it was the end. But yeah, after the event, then we heard that there's an extra 25 coming in January. Now, it's I suppose just, to people out there, they'll hear, God, you know, 75 euro, that sounds like a good good amount, a good whack, a good amount of money. Yeah. But just to explain to people that you, you haven't gotten like as, as a, you know, budget after budget, you, you know, we've had increases in welfare rates for, you know, all sorts of very deserving people, obviously. But you got absolutely nothing in the last 14 years. Nothing, nothing. I've been fostering for 10 years and we've just been at the same amount for so long. And inflation, the costs of everything, the, what we're expected to pay out, it's just, it, what frustrates me is it makes it unaffordable for a lot of people. And we need foster carers. We need foster carers to care for the children. And they're not coming in. They're not, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it in, at this stage if I was coming in and it was at it the amount you get because it just it's not affordable for so many people and if you can't afford to do it then why would you do it um just to explain why did you go into foster caring do you mind me asking marie oh um i just always wanted to do it and i was married and i had my my two children and my husband was agreeable and we just it was just something i always wanted to do it's just something in my in my instincts i suppose i just always wanted to be a foster carer because you, you, you saw the, the children that end up in, the, in this scenario and you wanted to be 
to be able to help yeah, those children? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was very empathetic to children who need more than what they're getting and need help, and I just wanted to be one of those people. I mean, it was really that simple, and I convinced my husband, and so we just went with it. And fostering becomes your... It becomes your life. It be, you build your world around fostering, and you build your family around fostering because it's such an important part of what you're doing. And you just do that automatically. Like, And the allowance aids you to be able to do that for the children, but it barely covers it now, you know. And it's it, like, why would anybody go into it now? And we have so few foster carers. Like, we need foster carers. But who's going to come into it, you know? And this is what frustrates me because... If we don't have the foster carers and we don't have cover, we don't have respite care because it's just not there. So we're left dealing with stuff on our own with no support. And I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's a very rewarding uh, thing to do to to, Mm -hmm. uh, step in in locus parentis, really, aren't you? Um, For children and some children, I'm sure, very vulnerable in a very vulnerable situation. It must be challenging as well, though, Maria. It's absolutely, it's the most fantastic thing to do. Oh, my God. Like, the rewards are just, I mean, immeasurable. But, yes, it is extremely challenging at times. And it really is a roller coaster. And sometimes you do need more. And at the moment, we're getting less and less and less. And it's just so difficult. It's, it's, it's more difficult than it's ever been. When I first came into it, it was a much easier scenario there seem to be a lot more carers a lot more social workers and at the moment it's just really difficult it makes the day-to-day stuff really difficult because you know you don't have any support and there's no point in looking for it at this stage because it's just not there and of course the thing is we can't identify any child that has uh, been the subject of a care order in any shape or form in Ireland that's the law and so Mm -hmm. these children really have no voice because Mm -hmm. because of the legal situation they're in apart from anything else Uh, so so the likes of yourself are the only voice for these children yeah yeah and we have to be so careful in how we voice it and we have to protect them at the same time and I think they know that we, we're quiet and we've been too quiet for too long and we're putting up with too much for too long and we have to get our voice out there for the sake of the children. It's just not good enough. To push it out for another year, I just, I can't understand. The sense of relief I felt when I heard €75, because immediately I thought, we're going to get more foster carers. People are going to come in. And then when I heard it's pushed out for another year, I'm like, gosh, like, what's the point? You know, it just doesn't make well, sense. Well, the point, I suppose, is they'll save money. <laughs> you know, if they put yes. it off for another year, that's a whole yeah. year's of, of those that increase that the government even doesn't have they to find. Know, yeah, even though they know that they need foster carers, you know, they know that there's not enough foster carers for the children coming into care. And yet they're not making it any kind of a feasible option for the majority of people. And just to say, am I right in saying that you have to have one parent at home in the house in order to yeah. be approved for foster caring. Yeah. So that's one person who obviously can't go out and get a job if, if times get yeah. tough financially in the household. Yeah, it's a huge commitment. It's a huge commitment for the whole family. Yeah. That was Maria, a caller to today's Live Line with Katie Hannan. 
Well, a topic that always proves popular is waste and what can and can't be recycled. EPA programme manager Warren Phelan joined Claire Byrne to fill us in. So recycling, people try, but it is confusing. Would you agree that it's it's confusing? It, it is confusing. It's confusing for some materials. I think plastics in particular would stand out. And like we're all encountering plastics now as part of our all of our purchasing habits in our day to day. So so there's certainly a challenge there for us to understand more. And what we're seeing in our study that we did is that we're seeing the majority of those plastics being put into our general waste bins. Mm. And really what we want to, the message for your listeners today is that in 2021, a change came about where soft plastics could now go into your recycling bin. That's the big one, isn't it? It is a big one. And soft plastics, I suppose we counted them in lots of our food wrapping. And really we want to encourage and get people to put that into their recycling bin. The, the, The simple handy tip is that if you can put it into your hand and scrunch it, it can go into your recycling bin. The other tip to remember is that it's clean, it's loose and it's dry. So it's not stuffed into another piece of packaging. It doesn't have food residue on it that you can clean it so it's dry and it can go into your recycling bin. See, this is a big shift because most people who have been fairly diligent when it comes to recycling are looking at things that are cardboard and paper and they've been only recycling those things. So we've had have to change now to, to putting the plastic in the in the recycling. It is, yeah. So we do have a, quite a range of materials that we can put into our recycling bin. You've mentioned paper, you've mentioned cardboard, you've mentioned plastics. And the plastics covers both those hard plastics and the soft plastics. So we'd all be quite familiar with, you know, the plastic bottles, whether that's a drinking bottle, whether it's a shampoo bottle, whether it's a washing up liquid. They can all go into the recycling bin as mm-hmm. well. We can also put in there our aluminium cans and tins. So there's quite a mix of materials that can go in there. If we can manage that well and put in, you know, them clean, loose and dry, it, we have a great opportunity to really improve our recycling as a society in Ireland. OK, so that hasn't changed. We do still have to clean them, the tins and the yoghurt cartons. We do have to clean them, yeah. And and like it's um, the simple uh, tip for your listeners out there is that kitchen roll, just take a piece of kitchen roll, wipe the contents of it and... You don't need to put that kitchen roll then in the general waste bin. You can put that in your organic waste bin. So that's that's your brown bin that most people are, are beginning to become food more waste. familiar bin. So it's your food waste bin. Yeah. Mm. So you can put those type of items in there. And we really want to, what we're seeing in the study is that uh, food waste is still one of the big offenders that we're putting into the general waste bin. So we need to really, you know, become better friends with our food waste bin. There's an awful lot of materials that we can put in there. So, you know, people are familiar with the peelings, the veg and the fruit, the stuff straight from your plate can go in there, the cooked food, the raw food. So in your preparation, raw meat, that can go in there as well. Even things like grease from the pan, that can go in as, as well. So there's a whole mix of things as well as your garden waste then can go in there. Yeah. And we can really see that people who are using that well, there's a big diversion of the material from their general waste bin. So I think we, we, we have to be, get better at using and being more confident about that. I think also sometimes there can be an apprehension about the food waste bin, about things like flies, for example. But the collectors now are providing that service every two weeks. And there's also liners that you can buy for your caddy in your kitchen. They need to be compostable. So they have to be stamped with that compostable mark mm. because you can't a just use any other plastic bag. Well, what we do is in. put a bit of kitchen roll in the bottom of the of the caddy, which then can go into the, the, bin, the bin outside the 
the organic bin or the brown bin. Absolutely. And newspaper is perfectly acceptable as well. Yeah. So you, you've ways around that and it's really for us to get a bit more confident and to really up our use of the food okay. waste bin. Now you mentioned that you can take the grease from the pan and put that into the, yeah. the brown bin or the organic waste. That's yeah. really important too because I think a lot of people struggle with what to do with that. Yeah, yeah. That kind of simple cleaning of, you know, food stuffs. So I've given the example there of cleaning the pan but I've also, if for example, we love our chicken fillets in Ireland, we buy them, you know, in the droves. We take that, we use the meat and, and then we're left with this packaging material which can have some residue in it and you'll have hard packaging on the bottom, soft on the top and some residue in there and often a kind of a pad that the meat has been sitting on as oh, well. Yes. So that's, you know, you've, you've got this challenge now but with your kitchen roll, you can clean the inside of that. That can go actually straight into your, your food bin. So that's the tray. That, uh, that's the tray. So the, No, sorry, the tray can go into the recycling bin once okay. it's cleaned. Yeah. The kitchen roll that you've you've used to clean the inside of it. That goes into the brown bin. That goes into the food bin. If the top soft plastic hasn't had any contaminant on it and it's clear, that can also go into your recycling bin. But often that's a tricky one to that's clean. That's touched the chicken though. It has touched the, chi- touched the chicken, but it still can be wiped clean. And okay. It, it can go into your into your recycling. Mm-hmm. All right. And the and the pad then that the chicken was sitting on then to absorb anything. Yeah, generally what? that has a, a plastic on it. It's like a composite material needs to go into the general bin. Okay. Now, I'm being asked here, uh, listeners are, are wondering what happens to the plastic that covers the chicken if it has stickers on it? If it has stickers on it, so you're, you're, what you're getting there is probably two different types of plastics so you've and you need to, to put that into the general waste. Bin. Okay, yeah. and uh, another listener would like to know, can we recycle blister packs from medication? At the moment, no, they need to go into the general waste bin as well. So so this is part of the, the challenge that's out there. There's lots of different, you know, plastic composite products. So what I mean by the composite, two multiple different types of plastics all being stuck together to service us. That's a no-no. And that's a no-no, no. And we, we see that in lots of our, lots of our products. And, you know, what I would encourage um, your listeners to do is do check out a, the website, mywaste.ie. It has an A to Z of all the materials and where to put them. And it really is a valuable and growing resource. And if you're ever unsure, it, you can worth checking. I think once you do check it once, you remember that the behaviour then starts to, you, you know, you, you start to just follow that each time. I have a couple of questions for you on glass uh, recycling, because you've reminded us there that we have to clean out the cans and the, the yoghurt cartons if we're putting them into the regular recycling bin but when it comes to glass mm. I've heard that they have to be taken to such high temperatures to be recycled that it doesn't matter if you clean them out or not is that right or wrong? Well w- with glass I mean the first thing to say glass can't go into your, your curbside bins at all Yeah it goes to go re- to the recycling centre and, and we have a really good you know network of bottle banks around the country and we need to segregate them by colour and we put them in the simple tip there is to drain them as best as possible So I have to take the sauce or whatever it is out of the, yeah, the yeah, glass Yeah exactly just jar. And, and to rinse them as much as possible and also to take the lid off them because the lids can be plastic or aluminium mm-hmm. and they can go into your recycling bin Cathy has an issue with this why do we have to separate glass by colour at the bottle bank when the lorry that empties the containers mixes them all together again? Yeah, that, this is something that does come up a lot. Um, it's quite simply, the, we, we, our system here in Ireland has always been about colour se- separation. And if you can uh, colour separate your glass, it's a much higher quality recyclable material. It can, it can find access to much better markets in terms of that. So mis- mixed recycling generally feeds kind of lower grades of recycling. Now, some of our recycling facilities can segregate out the glass, but not always the case. So we're much better off about having a colour segregated system. Mm-hmm. So you are asking people to do that. And then the companies who are recycling it, 
they mightn't be following that rule? No, no, they generally are following it. They will keep their yeah. segregated glass, the clear and the green. But she's not wrong, is she? It does happen that some of the companies that collected will mix them. Sometimes it can happen. A lot of this could you see, recyclables all vary around market prices and where the access to those markets are. And that's something that our industry are good at finding the, the right markets and the best prices for the recyclable materials. Dog poo question. Yeah. Um, disposing of dog poo is a huge issue. It all goes into the general waste because there's no other option. That's from Maria, who describes herself as a responsible dog owner. Yeah, no, it's great that we have so many responsible dog owners as well. Yes, it does have to go into the general waste bin. It can't go into the the food waste bin. There are bacteria in there that we don't want mixing with items that are in the food waste bin. So, yes, that's correct. It needs to go into Mm. the general waste bin. How do you feel about those plastic bags being used to pick up dog poo? Would you rather people use leaves or kick them into the curb or, you know, because you have a problem there if you have a a non-recyclable plastic bag. I think the biggest thing and biggest frustration for people is just encountering, you know, the bags kind of hanging off trees or strewn around the place and not actually being disposed of properly. Yeah. I think we, you know, um, I think most people would prefer to see anything like that removed from payments, etc. And for most people, carrying bags is, is the way that they do that. Mm-hmm. I, I think Regular that plastic bags, because you know you can get the compostable ones now, but if you're putting it into the general waste, does that matter? It, it doesn't matter as much, no. But compostable bags generally are are, the, are better for us, you know, to use those kind of compostable bags are made of those products that would break down easily. OK, um, tinfoil, which bin, says a listener rather urgently. Yeah, tinfoil is one that comes up a lot. So if we've used the tinfoil at home and it's, you know, basically for covering kind of foodstuffs and there's no foodstuff on it, essentially, we can put that into our recycling bin. So again, clean, loose and dry is the motto to remember. Mm. Uh, Another tip is if you can scrunch that up into a ball, it's very easy in the um, recycling plants for that to be identified and to make sure it goes into it. If it has been contaminated, so there's grease on it, there's foodstuff on it that can't be removed, has to go into your general waste. Okay, coffee pods, are they a big problem? Yeah, coffee is an interesting one, I suppose. Um, You know, if we think back into the 90s, how did we consume coffee in Ireland? We all simply had one jar at home and we instant, made yep. instant coffee. And that's the way we consumed it. Now, 30 odd years later, our consumption habits of, of coffee have changed so dramatically. You know, we want access to, uh, to it very in a convenient sense all the time. We want it at home. We want it on the go. So we generate lots of waste from our habits. We've disposable coffee cups. We've coffee pods. We've coffee capsules. The first thing I'd like uh, listeners to really think about is, you know, do they have a reusable keep cup coffee uh, at home? I mean, that's the first thing. We all should be using that at this stage, you know, and really cutting down on the disposable coffee cups. Disposable c- coffee cups, most people won't realise, they're again made of a composite materials. They're and not they just made of paper. Recycled. No, they have plastics in there as well. So they have to go into your general waste bin. Now, the, the sleeve that they're there often put onto them as well, that can be recycled. And often the lid as well can be recycled as well. So but, you can separate them out, yeah, but, but you, better not to... But to you see, them. in a very, very simple kind of product... We have, uh, you know, if you, all this thought has to go on to in a better home recycling yeah. this. Much easier to have your reusable your reusable cup okay. with you. Listen, I'm going to have to, to say goodbye now, but before I go, the coffee pods, the little capsules, Warren, yeah. what can people do with those? Coffee they pods, it, unfortunately, they're Can't. general waste and we're generating a huge number of these. 170 million of them we're generating annually. and you know, In Ireland? In Ireland alone. Wow. There you go. Stick with the instant coffee. That was Warren Phelan, EPA Programme Manager on Today with Claire Byrne. TV presenter Holly Willoughby announced her departure from ITV's This Morning after 14 years. And Gavin Jennings had the story on Morning Ireland. 
One of British and Irish daytime television's most recognisable faces, Holly Willoughby, says she's leaving ITV's this morning after 14 years. In a statement, she said she made the decision for me and my family. She had been absent from the screen since last week when a man was charged with soliciting to commit murder over an alleged plot to kidnap her. Her former, her former long-time co-presenter Philip Schofield quit the show earlier this year. Julian Drucker is a correspondent with Channel 5 News. He can tell us more. Uh, Julian, good morning. Tell us, what's happened? Hi there. Yeah, that statement was put out on Instagram yesterday evening. Apparently ITV were only told, her employers were only told a few minutes before she put out the statement. And as you said, she mentioned her family, but she did not refer uh, to this alleged plot from last week. This statement, she said, it's been an honour to just be part of its story. This is the programme, and I know this story has many chapters left to go. Sadly, however, I now feel I have to make this decision for me and my family. I will miss you all so much. And yes, this plot, um, at the end of last week, she was only told uh, on Thursday morning last week. Um, I was in court to see... Uh, this guy in the dock on Friday morning um, who was accused of this alleged uh, kidnap plot. Uh, so, in a, you know, an extremely stressful week for her last week. Uh, she was mentioned in court, uh, this guy called Gavin Plum, uh, who, uh, you know, accused of pl plotting to murder or kidnap Holly Willoughby. He'll have a proper Crown Court hearing next week. But a, a fast-moving week for Holly Willoughby, an extremely stressful one. She's been under police protection, certainly on Thursday and Friday. It's not clear if uh, she's still got that sort of uh, police protection around her house. But uh, things have moved fast, and this career news has just happened uh, extremely quickly as well. Julian, similar to the departure of her co-presenter, Philip Schofield, why is this such big news in Britain? It's uh, just huge news because, as you say, you know, this is a big programme, although its viewing figures have fallen in recent years. This is, you know, two and a half hours of TV every day, a programme that gets perhaps almost disproportionately reported on by the uh, British media, uh, but a programme that, you know, the Prime Minister was on last week on Friday, although admittedly she wasn't there because uh, she was off because of this alleged kidnap plot. So it, it is a story that generates headlines. This year last couple of years, it has generated so many headlines about itself. It has now lost its two main presenters. And, you know, I think there will be possibly be questions now about the future of the programme itself. They can put new presenters on, but there is this inquiry going on by Casey into, you know, the, the uh, undercurrent of the programme, whether, you know, there's been accusations of a toxic culture. That is due to report back later this year. So there are still some potentially difficult headlines coming up. That was Julian Drucker, correspondent with Channel 5 News on Morning Ireland. important is friendship and what defines a real friend? Well, Dr. Harry Barry, GP and mental health specialist and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven from the Department of Psychology at the University of Limerick joined Claire Byrne to discuss. So we'll start with um, definitions, Anne-Marie, because it's always a good place if we know what the parameters are. Yes. What is friendship? How would you define it? So we probably all have a sense, you know, of what a friend actually is. But if you want to be technical about it, as I like to be, I would describe a friendship as something that's voluntary. So a voluntary relationship, a relationship that's reciprocal. So both people need to feel they're in the friendship. It's also associated with positive affect or mood. So you like the person. 
most of the time at least. And we would also describe friendships usually as non-kin, non-family relationships. So you might be friends with your cousin, but we would usually consider that a familial relationship first rather than a true friendship in the technical Mm -hmm. terms. And we also uh, consider friendships to be, you know, equal. There's not a hierarchy involved. So in the workplace, someone would be your manager. There's some other hierarchical structure, but friendships should be equal. They should be equal on on both sides. Harry, uh, we always say, you know, you should have, you probably have no more friends than you can count on on one hand. And I wish teenagers knew that or, you know, young children knew that because as you get older, you get to recognise the wisdom of that statement, don't you? Yes, I I think, you know, it's an extraordinary thing that uh, the famous Roger or Robert Dunbar number of 150 social relationships at any one time. And we all keep changing those relationships all the time. But even he accepts that the maximum number of friends that we really will have, true friends, I'm talking about the real thing here now, is three to five. Mm -hmm. And Uh, what is a true friend then? What's the difference? Well, for me, you know, what distinguishes the true friend is the ability to open up emotionally about any area of your life to that person with trust, honesty, with kindness, do you know what I mean? And yet, uh, you know that this person will give it to you. Do you know what I mean? In other words, if you feel, uh, you know, um, look, uh, I need somebody to give me a talking to here, you know your a true friend will, will own up and say, look, you've got to face this or you've got to handle this. Or Also, for me, a, a real friend is somebody who's there in the bad times. You know, it's amazing how your friends kind of disappear like dust. Do you know what I mean? When you're in trouble when difficulties come, when everybody else is around you, that's when a true friend, when, when the person is there for you no matter what. And also they're there for the good times. Do you know what I mean? They're not just there for mm-hmm. the, 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 the bad times, the, the periods of lost grief, all those things, but they're there really for the good times. And maybe it'll take going through one of those bad times to find out who your friends who are. Who your true friends mm-hmm. are. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I said there at the beginning, Anne-Marie, that we hear a lot about romantic relationships, even mm-hmm. about family. If we think about a drama like Succession that we saw on television and everybody was, was mad about, that was about the family. We don't hear so much about the importance of of friendships. Do you think they're overlooked? I do think they're overlooked. So we talk a lot about friendships maybe in childhood or adolescence where people have quite a large number of friends and that's good for adolescents, right? They need to figure out who they are. So it's good for them to be exposed to a lot of different people in that way. But when people get to adulthood, historically, the research is really focused on romantic partnerships or marriage. And I think we're going to see a shift in that because fewer people are getting married and those that do are getting married later. So actually friends are taking a greater prominence in the lives of adults than they have before. So the research is playing catch up but Mm -hmm. I think we'll get there and we know they're so important for health so that's a really good thing. Now we spoke about the true friends and they are five or or less but there are different types of friendships and they may be people beyond the five is that right? Yeah I think this is a very important thing that we all have loads of acquaintances these are people that we bump into on a constant basis maybe at work maybe maybe sitting or or standing at the sideline when you're cheering your children on those type of situations Uh, I think we but most of us have what I call a, a fairly large or not large number but a reasonable number of what I call social friends and these are people that we meet on a pretty regular basis. It could be at work, it could be in social events, it could be sporting events or whatever like that. And you enjoy having and a chat with them. And you enjoy having a chat and yeah. you're comfortable with them, you don't feel uneasy with them. But, and this is the big but, you don't really feel that you know them well enough to say, open up, you know, I'm really struggling at home with my husband or my, my child is struggling with this problem here. 
those kind of very fine kind of things that that are maybe deep things, you're, you're you have that slight reluctance to it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about those social relationships, which are terribly important, by the way, I think they form the, the, the bulwark of our lives. Do you know what I mean? Is that they keep changing. So accordingly, as you go through the different phrases, your your ch- children are going to uh, primary school, your children are going to secondary school, and then they all move on. And each time you have to kind of make changes because all those social relationships are constantly changing. So the acquaintances and the social friends may change. They change. The true but friends? But the true friends are usually there for the, you know. You know, the, the difficulty is, though, that it's so difficult to maintain these. And, and I, I think... Uh, uh, the word sustain is a very important word. And I, I think that was a very interesting point that Anne-Marie was talking about there, that we have a U-shaped curve where we've loads of um, friends, if we want to call them like friendships, in our, in our, in our adolescence, for example. Uh, we, funnily enough, when we're older, we have more time and we realise the importance of those relationships. So we spend, we, we're trying to invest in friendships. But uh, what about the middle group? And it's, this is a very interesting area that there's a huge drop in our uh, friendships during this phase. And the reason for that is obviously so when you're, you're working so, and you've you're so busy of children, you have ailing parents, you know, you've all the pressures uh, uh, and you're chasing around and doing things. And in some ways, we don't put the effort and the perseverance because we don't value these relationships and sometimes even really good friendships. Will, will begin to wither a little bit because they need nourishment and they need perseverance and need hard work. Uh, and a very interesting thing from my point of view when I was kind of looking at this uh, is, is, is the fact that not only are we losing them in, in these middle years, if you want to put it like that, but we seem to be losing this concept of friendship full stop. Like a very interesting survey showed that over a seven-year period, um, uh, many, many people had lost touch with about half of their friends. And I think that's very worrying, you know, because I think we need the support and the love and the friendship, you know. Or, yeah, we, uh, might, we, you know. we might need it, uh, Amory, but we've got yeah. to put the effort in, we've got yeah. to put the work in. I'm getting a bit worried now, Harry, because <laughs> I might have a few phone calls to make after this being in, in midlife. Yeah, we do We do have to put the work in. Um, so friendships require a little bit of maintenance. It's not necessarily a lot, but certainly when you are pulled in all different directions and you literally have maybe children in front of you that, that need feeding, Certainly the nurturing that needs to go into a friendship is not high on the list. But we do know a little bit about how you might nurture a friendship. So some of those factors that help sustain it. Well, one is, unfortunately, it's interaction, right? So that means spending time together or interacting in some other way. And of course, that's easier said than done. But having regular or at least trying to purposefully arrange an interaction or opportunity to meet up even if you haven't seen each other in a while that's important in keeping friendships going or maybe acknowledging that look it has been a while but I'd still really like to catch up so that's one thing that's important and something else that's important that people probably do without even realising is that piece that Harry mentioned around sharing information. So disclosing personal experiences or feelings about things. That's something we often do to elicit support from friendships. But it also signals to people that, you know, I value you, I trust you, you're someone I can share this with. And it strengthens friendship bonds. So if you can make space for those uh, opportunities to connect and to engage in that kind of disclosure when it's relevant, Mm -hmm. those are things that will help sustain a friendship. I suppose the problem 
problems arise when you make the wrong call and you disclose some of that very personal information to someone who you thought was a good friend, but maybe they were an acquaintance who you couldn't really trust. Yes, and you know what? Sometimes maybe you're having a day where you are going to disclose to the first person who comes near you. It's just that kind of day and and you might learn a lesson from that. You know, you'd hope most people would be discreet if you were sharing something personal with them. But if not, I suppose you have learned something about that relationship and that might help you focus more on the relationships that are most emotionally meaningful and and trusting for you after that. Pat says, am I alone in being quite happy not to have any true friends? It's too much work. You are not alone, Pat. (laughs) You aren't. And actually, some of the research on a single lifestyle now has identified cohorts of people who might be characterised as liking, they like to avoid potential conflict and disagreements, okay? So you like to keep things a little surface level and you're happiest in that kind of mode. And I think that's absolutely fine. We don't need to be pouring our hearts out the whole time. The idea is that you would find social goals that meet your own needs. And that can be, for some people, those kind of... uh, lesser, more social friendships rather than deep emotional ties that Harry mentioned. Do you be comfortable, Harry, with Pat now not having any yeah, close I, friends? I would, say, well, I would always say to a person, do you know what I mean? If, you, if you're comfortable with that, that's fine, that's fine with me. But I would say that introverted people are far more likely to have much fewer friendships but maybe deeper friendships. Uh, extrovert people, le- uh, more, fr- more friendships but maybe not as wide. The only thing I would say to, to, to Pat in, in maybe in response is that there's a lot of work being done now, do you know what I mean? Showing, well, what are the actual positive sides of, of a good friendship? Yeah. You know, and these are things we forget about. Stronger immune system, we, we've, we pour out less cortisol, uh, we have inc- reduced incidence of depression and even dementia. For example, you go to the uh, blue zones and you'll find that they're hugely into friendships and things like that. A significant reduction in loneliness. Now, there is one that I'm mm-hmm. actually very interested in because loneliness is one of these conditions that we're not talking about. It's, a, it's actually almost an illness, which is as serious as smoking and many, many other illnesses. Uh, I think reduced incidence of high blood pressure and that we cope better with traumas such as separations or illnesses. Uh, and also, let's be blunt about it, if we have a really good friend, they're going to encourage us, uh, if they see us in, involved in some unhealthy lifestyle things, they're going to be the first person to probably say, no, come on. Oh, that can work yeah. the other way. It can come work. Come on now, oh, my good can. friend, let's go and have a drink. OK, yes, see? it can go the, it can go the other way. Absolutely. But... True friends. There's no harm in having no, a drink occasionally, no, by but the true, way. No, but a true <laughs> friend should be able to say to you, do you know what I mean? Look, you know, I think you're drinking too much. You know yeah, what I, I mean? I uh, have yeah, a message yeah, here yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on that, which asks, when do you draw the line on a friendship? A true friend together through t- thick and thin has now descended into addiction. I've helped them access addiction services, but nothing has changed. I've taken time out, but I feel guilty about taking time out. That, that's a brilliant uh, question there now. Well, one of the things that I have is that if, a, if, like, you, if you were there for a friend, remember, when a person goes into the world of addiction, it's like going into what I call the addiction castle. So you lose the person because they're surrounded by a defensive wall. So you're actually not actually any longer interacting with your friend. You're interacting with this wall around with the, the addiction. Now, if you are getting hurt by that and you have tried over and over and over again in every conceivable way to help that person, then don't be afraid to walk away. Uh, say to him, look, I'm here but I can't do anything for you till you come to a realisation. And don't feel guilty about it. And don't feel mm-hmm. guilty about that. Absolutely not. And a very good uh, line is, if for some reason 
a relationship becomes toxic. Do you know what I mean? A friendship becomes toxic. Don't be afraid to say, look, this is no longer helping me or helping the other person and and leave that relationship. Dr. Harry Barry and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven on Today with Claire Byrne. And later, Oliver Callan met a Cork duo who turned their friendship into a very popular podcast and now book. PJ Kirby and Kevin Toomey from the I'm Grand Man podcast were on the nine o'clock show. Have the most compelling unbelievable, bizarre and beautiful coming out stories. Okay, yeah. Which is, because I went back to the very start of the podcast. I remember I'd heard at the time and um, and, and the book opens here with coming out stories. Yes, mm-hmm. it does. I mean, uh, and I, I scroll back, absolutely uh, roared laughing, by the way. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> as all tragedies. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> These are absolutely it, hysterical. Um, but yeah, no, there's a, like, what coming out story do we want to tell? Because you come out about 50 million times when you do come out. Yeah. Um, but I think the one you're referring to is um, the first time I came out. It was actually quite sad because I moved away from Cork when I was 20. Yeah. Got to London. And then a few months later, my dad got ill and like fell into a coma. And they were like, you better go home and say goodbye to him because like he's dying, basically. Um, so then we flew back to Cork. Got there and then I was in the closet at the time and I had no intention of coming out. I was like, oh, I'll just, I'm a good actor. I'll get away with it for like the rest of my life. I won't tell anyone. Um, but Also I'm, with PJ, he, PJ was a bit more discreet about things. Like he he, he was a bit more masculine. He's huge, tall, very broad, loved a big baggy hoodie. I was I was, I was very camp. You couldn't <laughs> hide it. Very camp. There was no hiding. Uh, but I came back and um, I was in the hospital and they were like, oh... Go in and say goodbye. Hearing's the last thing to go. And I went in and I was like... On your own? Yeah. yeah. So I was in on my own and then they were like... Um, I started talking to him randomly, just about random stuff. And then I could feel like it bubbling up inside me. I was like, oh, you need to tell him you're gay. And I was like, but you're not, tell- you're not supposed to be telling anyone you're gay. And then I was just like, oh, dad, I'm gay. But obviously he was in a coma, so he didn't say anything back to me. Like he wasn't going to pop up and be like, let's go to drag brunch. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so then I was just like, I'm gay. And it, it was like a big weight off my shoulder. And he was the first person I told. And, and, the, and um, the first time you said it out loud? Yeah, first time I said it like out loud to somebody. Well, I think I whispered it to my dog, Rocky, when I took him on a walk one day. But like, he was the first human. <laughs> he was the first human. And and then he ran away. Told. The dog ran the away. The dog didn't run away. And that's where his abandoned mission. But he did die in the same year as my dad did, which is terrible. But didn't your sister tell you recently the dog didn't die? He did die. What do you mean? And then he just they just sold him. No, he, I spread his ashes in the River Lee. I know you're not supposed Back to. Back to the pertinent issue here, because the, and obviously you don't keep it going uh, that week, the coming out and the, no, fu- I at the funeral. Like, and so on. I didn't want to rob the spotlight, but like, um, no, it was a really hard time. Like I did, it was my first time dealing with grief, and I like. I can talk about it now and laugh about it because it's been 10 years on but like mm. it was so hard so I left it a few months and then I started coming out um, in less dramatic ways so like I was at my sister's house and we were like drinking a bit of wine and then went out the back and I was like ma'am guess who's gay and then she was like who and I was like me and then she kind of laughed and I was like no seriously me and then I was like maybe in hindsight I should have treated it with a but bit more but that's the more. weirdest thing you've ever done I, I think. was just like rip off <laughs> the bandage guess who's gay oh it's me but I was like rip off the bandage you know I already did the big dramatic one yeah. to like uh, unresponsive audience yeah. you know what I mean I needed to like Shake it up a bit. How long after then your your dad's death did you come out to your mum? Um, I don't know really. To be honest, like that, the next like two years after my dad passed, like it's all a blur. Like there, there was no timeline. Like time was like I didn't know yeah. what was happening. Um, so it well, you came been, out to me that Christmas. Yeah, I came out to Kevin that Christmas, and your dad would have been so that would have been no October, November, December. So that's two months later. 
So maybe like I thought I was going to say six months, but it obviously must have been two. No, I think your mum knew after me. <laughs> Don't tell her that. <laughs> no, because um, but, but Lindsay knew. Did your mum no, and Lindsay know at the I same time? So I cornered Kevin in my um my twenty first because they they were like you have to have a twenty first and I was like okay and then um, I <laughs> they had a load of drink left over from the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, so drinking they, whiskey. And so all then that I much. cornered Kevin and I was like, I know you're gay as well. That's what he said to me. Ah, he came yeah. up to me and goes I know you're gay by the way And I was like <laughs> And I goes, what? Let's work the house and he goes But I am too <laughs> I guess I it's like, kind of coming out And an outing Someone yeah, else yeah. Yeah. And then we kissed we we did, Only we joking did listeners we We've never we kissed Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Despite PJ's protestations We've never kissed <laughs> Where do we go here? Uh, by the way, and, and once you'd ripped off the uh, the plaster, nonchalant coming out yeah. all the time. Uh, yeah, basically, like, I was just like, might as well have fun with it now. Obviously, I just wanted, like, no, I wasn't. Like, it was still hard, but yeah. I did, I did just because it's so, like, for anybody listening who was ever coming up there, they get it, right? It's like, you have to tell the whole parish. I just mm. wanted to, like, rent a billboard in the middle of Cork City and go, PJ's gay, and then put my phone number. On the bottom of it, and hope that people give me a ring. Like, since and do another photo shoot. You, do another photo shoot because I'm addicted to them. That's why we all have started. Well, yeah, I was just, I, like there was one time I was coming out. Uh, listeners, if you're listening and you're thinking of coming out, don't do it when someone's driving a moving vehicle because my sister nearly crashed the car in the roundabout by yeah. Cox to the airport. That's really good advice. Yeah, really I good. came out to my mum in the car and. She, we were coming down Donnybrook Hill in Cork and she swerved into the side and she was like, what? Full yeah. swerve. Yeah. Full swerve. Yeah, New so Year's Eve. Dangerous. It was very, very dangerous. On New Year's Eve? I came out on New Year's Eve because I was like, you know, New Year, New Me kind of thing. Yeah, again. <laughs> so I just, Would you advise people? New Year's resolution, be good. I actually, I kind of loved doing it on New Year's Eve, to it's be honest. Camp. It did feel a bit like, you oh, know... Yeah. And I don't, I'm not really a big fan of New Year's and stuff. So I was a bit like, look at me kind of causing a ruckus on New Year's. And you actually make the following year a different... By doing that, don't you? Yeah, exactly. It's very new. I'm a completely different person finishing off the end of one year to the start of the next. And but that's true, isn't it? You are. Are you a completely different person, more or less, if you're, when you're out? Um, you know what? It's just you're not second-guessing yourself at all, I suppose. Or My tendencies were always the same. I was always a bit effeminate. I was always a bit sensitive. Whereas then, once I came out, then there wasn't as much shame about showing that mm. side of myself, you know? Yeah. I was, you yes, know what okay. I mean? And I kind of, yeah. I felt like I was like, well, sure, everyone knows now, what do I have to lose kind of thing? I don't think you become a completely different person, but there's definitely a weight off your shoulders and you feel lighter. Like I felt this, I felt this, like the same person, but I felt like I just wasn't hiding a certain Yeah, I felt the same me, person. You know? Yeah. That's a huge change. Um, uh, so tell us more about your, your comings out, uh, Kevin. So I told my mum on New Year's and yeah. then she had asked me, I was planning on telling my dad as well because like so I she said... she no idea. She swerves the car. See, the thing is, my mum says she's no had no idea but she always treated me like the gay son. And he was the gay. <laughs> and I was the gay son. I was, you know what I mean? I was in all the musicals growing up. I would yeah. always put my hand up. I, I played, but like before I came out, I played like... I was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I was the Queen of Hearts in The Fairy Tale of Cork. I was Aladdin's mam in my first ever production Aladdin's in first mam. class. Any mam. opportunity to get into drag, Kevin took it. I was actually Aladdin's mam, but then the fellow who was playing Aladdin didn't know the lines the week before the thing. And I was the only fellow who didn't. I was mouthing everyone else's lines. So the teacher was like, Aladdin, give us that lamp and give it to Kevin. And then he had to be the man, which he wasn't chuffed about. I was buzzing to be Aladdin, actually. Um... So told my mum and then she had asked me not to tell my dad because 
he was off work for Christmas and she said yeah. it would be a bit awkward for the two weeks <laughs> right, okay. you know because he didn't have anything to be busying himself with and I was like what because you're all going to be in the house because we're all going to yeah. be in the house and you know what's so. a bit of a an so, awful time anyway, isn't it? That kind of window, all you do is eat and fight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think we're coming out. It may not be the best time. Yeah. Uh, so when, when does it happen then with uh, with the dad? So when, when he went back to work two weeks later, literally that Monday, I came home and my mum was like, well, are you going to tell your dad or what? And I was like, well, I wanted to tell him two weeks ago and you told me not to. And then I was kind of crying because I was talking to her about it and next thing I heard the key in the door. He was Why are you the- crying, by the way? Because I'm chatting to my mum and she's saying... Because he's coming out as a gay was, man. Why I was just saying, oh, it's so annoying they have to do all this. Why were you crying? <laughs> but are you afraid? Because <laughs> it's your father. Is, it, is there a fear? Is that why you're crying? It was just, there was just so much emotions happening around yeah, that yeah. time. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. I was like, I didn't know how to deal with it. And it is like, I mean, my brothers and my sister never had to have a conversation with my parents that, yeah. you know, when they turned yeah. 20 and said, oh, by the way, I'm interested in yeah. lads. I'm interested in girls. It's just a bit of a... Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really nerve-wracking moment because, like, you're especially you're and putting if you're, yourself in a vulnerable position, like. Yeah, and I do think because I don't know, me and Kevin always say this, like, we did like gravitate towards our mum's energy when we were younger because we felt a bit safer around her because we were a bit more feminist, you know. Um, so then coming out to our dads was a bit like more nerve-wracking. I think. It it's is, a big moment, it yeah. would be, you know, because you're the son. I'm like my dad was my like coach in football for years and stuff. Like he knew I did dancing and all the rest of it. But now I, to be honest, I did think that it was going to come as no surprise to anyone. Yeah. I was very shocked that my parents were shocked and I was kind of like, <laughs> oh my God, not me being a masculine gay. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, hair tucked behind the ear. Um, but anyway, my dad came in that evening and he'd collected my sister from, I think she was Irish dancing at the time. It's actually a sin that my sister gave up the Irish dancing. I know, I'd love to see her Irish dancing at the wedding. Um, when he came in and I was like, oh my God. And I was like, he's going to know I was crying. So I, I headed for the biscuit cupboard and just threw my head <laughs> into the safest it. place. Safest yeah. place in, in, in an Irish domestic setting. And you can get a little treat when you're waiting. And anyway, he came <laughs> in and he was having a conversation. My mum was there. And I said I had my head in the cupboard. I was like, Where, where's the Cafe Noir? Where, <laughs> Where are the custard Where are the bourbons? And he, um, he was like, what's wrong with you there? And I popped my head out and he saw it. My, my cheeks were red and... You know, tears have been streaming down my face. And then, oh, redder than usual. <laughs> and I, I told him, and it was, you know, it was a bit... It was just, like, a lot. I think, like, for parents in Ireland, especially, like, um, like in people who are growing up, my mum and dad's generation, it is that idea of, like, you know, them worrying about us and then thinking yeah. that we're going to have a tougher life because mm. we're gay. And, you know, my dad said that he knew one gay person growing up in school and that... You know, he got an awful slagging and stuff, and yeah. they just don't want that to be happening to us. PJ Kirby and Kevin Toomey from I'm Grand Ma'am on the nine o'clock show with Oliver Callan. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So, from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>